I'm Lauren Beyer, and you're listening to the Passengers Artcast. very exciting episode. I'm going to be talking about the state of digital art as it is now, um, and I'm having this conversation with a very good friend of mine from grad school, uh, Hoyon. How are you doing today, Hoyon? Um, great. How are you? I'm doing well. Hoyon, could you uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. Um, so my name is Hoyan Mipoki. I'm a first year PhD student in the um, Department of Art History and Archaeology at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, as you said, uh, we so I did my master's uh, at American University and we were classmates. Um, my specialization is in French art of the 19th century, uh, which I'm interested in thinking about from a sort of like global colonial cross-cultural perspective. Um, but I'm also excited to be here because I'm fascinated by digital art and the digital humanities. So I'm really grateful to have been asked um, to come and speak about these ideas. Yeah, of course. We're, we're so happy to have you on. So I kind of want to start off talking about specifically, I think it's really important to touch on like digital archives and what, how this kind of been brought on by COVID and how kind of important that access is to to the general public to have these museums digitize their collections like they're doing. Right. Yeah. So COVID has really forced museums to pivot to the digital realm in a way that we haven't really seen before, I think. Um, Because prior to all of this happening, I think so much of the digital programming that we saw was uh, complementary to the sort of physical experience rather than being an aspect of the museum experience that was sort of, that could replace or replicate, you know, the sort of physical museum going one. Um, But when everything shut down, you know, we began to see these massive shifts towards like virtual exhibitions, virtual programming, you know, a lot of archival materials became digitized. The Louvre very famously made all of its like nearly 500,000 objects uh, available online. which is really cool. And AR technology has also become a really interesting uh, thing that we've seen uh, recently, especially with like, there are, you know, sort of sculptural works that you can't really get a good sort of grasp of on a two dimensional image. Um, But AR allows you to sort of do that or, you know, AR, VR and, and other sort of similar technologies allow you to get a comprehensive like 360 view of of sculptural works. Um, so yeah, it's been really cool to see how uh, digital archives has sort of become much more emphasized in recent years. And I think it's also really interesting to think about it from an aspect of accessibility, right? Because I could look at a digitized collection from a museum in Dubai or in London that I would probably never, ever have a chance to see. So I think it's really interesting to think about digital art and accessibility too. Right. It really is the, like, when people talk about the democ- democratization of art, like this is really a sort of step in the right direction in that sense, right? And it's not just museum goers, it's also like curators and, you know, art historians and conservators who can benefit from this technology. As you said, it, you know, we don't, we no longer have to 
be in Dubai, for example, um, to look at a work of art, we can sort of experience it rather comprehensively through our screens. Um, again, not just on a two-dimensional, in a two-dimensional way, but also, you know, through these new technologies that allow us to experience things three-dimensionally as well. Kind of picking up on a point that you brought up earlier, like art and um, AR and VR, I think it's really interesting to see projects like the Unfiltered History Tour being like brought to the British Museum, which is just so incredible. For those of you who haven't seen this, um, a tech developer has developed a, an AR experience throughout the British Museum where it, if you were to take a picture of a certain piece of art, it kind of tells you the story about it and where the British Museum acquired it, which is so needed because the British Museum just doesn't take responsibility for, for what it's quite frankly stolen from other people. So I think it's about time um, that something like this came along. What do you what do you think about that, Hoyan? Oh yeah, I totally agree. I think it's I think it is really interesting, especially in recent years when the sort of call to return looted objects has become a lot stronger and louder that these sort of techno technological and digital initiatives are sort of starting to take place. Um, so yeah, it's, it's fascinating because as you say, the British Museum doesn't, there are a lot of sort of histories and narratives that, you know, big institutions like the British Museum sort of hides or, you know, uh, tries to bury. Um, so it's really interesting that we are seeing that we have these technologies that allow us to unearth these sort of buried histories or narratives. Um, you know, so instead of seeing the or experiencing this carefully curated art experience that the British Museum tries to like impose on you, this AR technology allows you to sort of step outside of that and then get a more nuanced, um, complete picture of what you're looking at. I totally agree. And I think it's such a refreshing kind of flip of the script, because I feel like when you see technology or AR or VR using museums, it's usually like for novelty purposes, like for Instagram pictures or kind of like a... a attraction to get people to come visit whereas this is just like calling the british museum out and i'm always all about that <laughs> kind of talking about ar and vr on that same train of thought i think it's also really interesting to now see a lot of artists working with tech especially when you have artists like um rafiq anandal and team lab who are using who constantly use technology in like really new and exciting ways to to produce art yeah for sure anandal specifically is an artist i've seen uh, i sort of you know mentioned about this about how a lot of his works have sort of popped up on my feed recently um and it's really interesting what he does um I really like his, so they're, um, they're his series of data sculptures that he calls them. It's these huge immersive experiences where what you're looking at is basically a visualization and rendering of data that he gets from the Turkish state uh, meteorological service, right? So it's the ocean surface, for instance, rendered digitally um, through data. So it's really interesting because, and this, this this kind of reminds me a lot of like what Andy Orhol was doing, for instance, you know, sort of using the stuff of his time, right? He's using things like um, commercialism, celebrity worship, mass media, but artists today are using data because we are so sort of inundated with data and information and, and you know, ones and zeros and things like that. So it's fascinating that what, you know, these works sort of show us things that are sort of filtered through data and filtered through ones and zeros. And, um, you know, it's a sort of weird postmodern, like, 
experience where you're not you're not experiencing the reality of the ocean surface you're experiencing what is rendered through again data and information um so it's a sort of intermediary through which knowledge about this space is produced um but also the space itself is produced through through this through this data so it's you know again this post this weird postmodern concept that you know makes us think of things like you us simulations and reality and hyper reality and things like that for sure and I think it's also really cool to think about it in the terms of collective memory, right? Because he's also done installations at like the Gaudi apartments in Barcelona. He did a recent one at the Louvre mm-hmm. with their entire collection, basically with the same idea, using that collective data to, to all digitally rep- um, represented in, in one big sculptural piece. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about how that bridges so many gaps, not even between like STEM and art, but also just the idea of collective memory where it's really something that you can be immersed in and you don't have to fully know what's going on but you're like oh i get it It, i think it kind of relates to like a lot of abstract pieces in that way as well yeah it's certainly it's certainly a deeply participatory experience for sure um and as you say this it's this immersive enveloping uh, sort of encounter where you become part of the art. Again, it's, it's, it's really quite deeply postmodern <laughs> in the sense where the art object or art experience is incomplete until you sort of become a part of it. And you're almost, viewers are almost sort of forced to take part in, in the creation of, of meaning in, in these works. So it's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting what, how sort of digital art is being deployed in these ways where it's no longer just, um, images on a wall or sculptures that you can walk around or even sort of happenings that you can experience you you are being sort of being invited to take part in the the meaning of the work and i think team lab does a really great part of that as well using um just a lot of other like digital mediums whether it's digital painting or projections or um you know lighting i think i've always been really interested in team lab i think they do such amazing work at like really getting you to like stop and stare and to really be immersed in it and kind of figure out like how is this actually working um yeah I just think digital art right now is so cool and it's such an exciting time to kind of watch it yeah for sure yeah team lab is is really unique because in, I, I think in in the same way you know we we're we've been talking about this sort of again the, the these the phrases immersive experience <laughs> has been popping up a lot in our conversation but I really think it there's something there's something quite relevant to our sort of cultural moment where and and thinking again about you know uh, the democratization of art and and you know art museums operating in the age of covid so much of that happens in um, the sphere of social media right where you you're experiencing culture through this new technology that has shifted the way we interact with one another um and team lab does something so cool where and i'm, I'm thinking of there's there's this forest uh, installation that they do and they, you have these sort of acorns that light up and it's this it's, it's this fascinating thing where it's like there's this oneness that you become a part of and there's this interconnectedness um and it, that just and this is this might seem tangential but it reminds me a lot about our social our sort of social media era where our interconnectedness has sort of become like has sort of exploded exponentially and it's it's really interesting to see how the cultural shifts that have come out of that are being represented in like visual and material culture 
Yeah, and I think kind of going on that tangent of social media, I think it's really insane now, especially in the sphere of Twitter, all of the art that I see on Twitter is stuff that I probably would never be able to see, like in a gallery or in a museum. And it's, there are incredible pieces. And I think digital publications like Passengers, um, modest plug, I think can be really beneficial, especially to artists and not only to their audiences, because you're giving exposure to both like audiences and artists that you probably wouldn't be able to see anybody else anywhere else. And um, I don't know, I think since I've been in the sphere of like digital publications now with passengers, I think it's really awesome to give that opportunity to artists to publish them and really give them that exposure. And I think that's such a great thing that digital media can do. Yeah, for sure. And um, so Twitter specifically has been a really interesting sort of platform in that sense, because I've, I've come across a lot of artists who use Twitter as sort of their primary mode of engaging with their audience and with, you know, other artists and, and things like that. Um, and so much of the digital art that we see on platforms like Twitter and other digital publications appear to be taking part in this like generative art NFT trend thing that's been going on. Um, it's fascinating. And like, on one hand, it's, really weird to see to see how much of this is like how quickly all of this is developing and how much it has exploded like even in like the past couple of months even and on, on the other hand it's also as you know as, as cultural historians i think we it we would be it would be um not right for us to dismiss <laughs> this new this new sort of cultural form um as as weird and bizarre as it is so yeah, digital publications have become a really interesting way of distributing and engaging with art where, you know, you, the sort of old school dealer gallery system doesn't really, it doesn't really operate in the same way as it does anymore, right? It's, it's again, this whole concept of democratization of art has really, it's, it's something that we see in all aspects of art making and art engagement, right? Not only museums, but also in, in, in uh, the way that independent artists sort of make a living. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's really interesting to think about the benefits of like digital publications versus NFTs. How how would you begin to explain an NFT to somebody who doesn't know what an NFT is? Hold on. An NFT is bait. I mean, broadly speaking, right? An, F an NFT is a um, it's the the blockchain technology that enables NFTs is basically not restricted to art. Right. It's this sort of secure authentication platform, basically, that you can use to digitally store and verify ownership of things. Um, artwork being one of those things. Uh, what is bizarre about this whole NFT thing, however, is that people have sort of somehow taken to it as this massive like financial investment machine where you're no longer it's no longer like you know, artists and photographers and, and other sort of people working in visual media who are using this technology to um, sort of verify ownership of their works, right? Like, as an artist, I'm able to sell my work to someone digitally and have them own that piece and have that ownership be sort of verified very securely on as an NFT. What is bizarre is that so much of this art has sort of 
become nothing more than you know the typical money laundering like thing that people like to to you know label the art market as being. It's this like crazy time now when people are just spending like thousands of dollars on pixelated monkeys, and it's it's it's, it's insane. And I, I read this. I read this. Uh, I, I can't remember where I read this. Um, but someone was basically suggesting that yeah, maybe this is just like another money laundering scheme, quite literally, right? Like, how? Why? Why are we paying <laughs> like millions of dollars for a JPEG of like a rock? Um, so it, it's it's so fascinating that once again, you know, the the sort of culture industry has has become a vehicle for like or a manifestation of you know late stage capitalism and, and everything we despise about it. It's. It's so interesting because I remember when NFTs kind of first started coming around, I was like, in theory, like, it's kind of not a bad idea. But then when you think about it more and you start seeing how it can be taken advantage of, you're like, oh, no, like, this is not, this is, this is so not a good idea. Like, I, the money I would pay to sit down in one of our grad school art history classes and talk to somebody like Dr. Bellow about NFTs would, oh, my gosh, I would, I would love to have that conversation with her. Um... Yeah, I don't know. I feel like NFTs are just, in theory, it's good. But then in actual practice, I don't think it works. Because you also, not only do you have, like, regular artists doing this and kind of getting involved in, like, the crypto scene, but you also have, like, AI making art, which is another super interesting thing. You have, um, I just, yeah, I don't know. I feel like in theory, it's good. But in practice, it just doesn't, it doesn't work out. Yeah, there's this great um, article I read recently, or it is, it's a paper um, called Dealing in Temperaments that sort of talks about the rise of the gallery system in the 19th century and how so many art buyers were more interested in the ownership of like the artist franchise than they were in any sort of aesthetic interest, right? Like, I, I don't own a Picasso because I care about the aesthetic or political or social um, sort of meanings behind it or, or, or what is special about the work. I'm more interested in owning a Picasso. And I think so much of the NFT world has sort of taken to that, right? It, it's sort of manifesting in, in a new way in the digital realm now where, you know, I can sort of flaunt this JPEG of, of a monkey, not because of any political, social, economic, or aesthetic value that it contains, but more so be, as a way for me to signal that I have purchased or I've bought into the the franchise and I'm an owner of it. And therefore there is some sort of status or, or um, rarity associated with that, that I can now tap into. So it's, again, it's this fascinating, it's a fascinating way in which the art industry has again, become sort of co-opted by, uh, by like market economics. It's, it's a really weird, it's a really weird thing that's been going on. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to wrap my head around it as well. <laughs> Yeah, I have tried, I think I've watched, like, so many, like, YouTube videos <laughs> and read so many articles, right. like, trying to actually understand what an NFT is. And, of course, like, because I, I've studied art history, people are like, what do you think about NFTs? And I'm like, quite honestly, like, I'm not even really sure I get it. Like, it's, I think it's such a complicated system. And um, I think it would be interesting to kind of talk about, like, the benefits of maybe doing or publishing in like a digital publication versus doing an NFT in terms of like being an artist. Like what, what do you think are the differences or maybe even like benefits, pros, cons of 
doing something like a digital publication versus selling a whole bunch of NFTs? I have absolutely no idea. Um, <laughs> it is, yeah. Again, I, I think the, the issue that a lot of folks like us have, you know, folks like us who might be, who have been invested in and who have been sort of educated in more old school, traditional art history, you know, types of ways of thinking about art. I think this presents a really weird conundrum for us because we're not used to thinking about art ownership and art making in these ways. Um, and it's also because I think so much of so much about the NFT world is sort of quickly and rapidly changing and evolving. Um, you know, I mean, who like who knows when this again this pixelated monkey bubble is going to burst? Like, you know, like if we we this 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 whole cultural shift might be over like as quickly as it began, um, and we will have just as little to say about it as we did when it began. Um, so yeah, I really I really don't know. I think. And in, 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 a, in a similar vein, I, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about the British Museum pu- uh, putting, and of course it's a British Museum, putting out NFTs of Hokusai's uh, Great Wave, which is weird to me because we are talking about creating, you know, you know uh, creating these sort of digital, um, digital art pieces from prints that can be in theory indefinitely like sort of infinitely reproduced right the idea that i mean you know we we think about japanese prints today as like the hallmark of japanese art but they're actually you know very easily produced objects that weren't considered to be like high art quote-unquote high art back in the day um so the idea that we're taking again this woodblock printing technology that we can easily make hundreds and thousands of copies of and turning it into a digital asset that somehow needs to be that we are somehow attaching false scarcity to is really interesting. Again, because the whole thing about NFTs is that it's sort of predicated upon the idea that you can own something, and if you own it on the blockchain, then you are the sole owner, right? It's this again artificial scarcity that we are that we've sort of created. But it's so weird again to do that for a medium that is designed to not be scarce because it's reproducible and it's supposed to be this mass media object, even though we, you know, we might consider it today to be sort of historically and aesthetically important. Um, so yeah, a lot of questions, very few answers. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I just think it's really interesting to think about it from an artist's perspective, like would is owning an NFT or like selling NFTs as an artist like really that beneficial to you? Like, is it? I I'm not entirely sure. I I don't know, but I think it's also kind of interesting to think about NFTs because like there's that joke kind of going around Twitter. It's like, why have an NFT when I can just screenshot it? And it's like, mm, yeah, like <laughs> that's that. I mean, that's a good point right. to think about, right? Like you're like you've said, you're creating a false sense of scarcity, whereas for digital media, like it's always going to be on the internet. Like it's always going to be there. So like there is a possibility that you could just screenshot it and it's the same effect. You just don't own it per se. Um, so yeah, I, so many questions, not enough answers. I think I could <laughs> do an entire podcast about NFTs and how complicated they are. Um, oh, for sure. For we, sure. We won't get into that. Um, yeah, I think, <laughs> I don't know, man. It's just, it's just really interesting. And I think this, I think digital publications are really up and coming now. And so I'm kind of excited. Passengers has grown a lot in the past year. So I think it's really interesting to see where that's going to go on a digital standpoint 
from now. Um, I know we always try to think about like how how can we best serve artists and writers, especially those that are, that are minorities and don't often get published. And I think digital spaces are going to be a really, really great opportunity for those artists and writers and poets to really take advantage of. Yeah, for sure. You know, and as we've been talking again a lot, a lot about sort of the accessibility and, you know, the demo- democratization of art is something we've been saying a lot uh, today. Um, but I really think this is, you know, the, the digital realm is where all of this can be, can sort of happen really well and really sort of effectively. Um, you know, as you say, it's, it's sort of an easy way to connect to artists who are underrepresented or who historically have not had, have had, had access to the art market. Um, yeah, so again, just going back to the NFT thing really quickly, it's, it's difficult to think about how this block, the blockchain technology would facilitate that. So there's, again, a lot of, there's a lot of changes, I think, going on in the digital landscape as it, it seems like, you know, there's always something new happening. Um, but I'm, I'd love, I'm, you know, I'm very much interested in seeing how that affects the way that we engage with art and the way that, you know, people are always talking about, let's open the art market, let's make it more accessible. Let's, you know, have again, more minority and underrepresented artists. And it'll be interesting to see how that sort of develops over time. Yeah. I really think digital spaces are going to be an exciting thing to watch when it comes to art, even with the next year or so. So I'm very excited to kind of watch that and, and be a part of it. Um, Thank you so much, Hoyan, for coming on and having this conversation with me. I appreciate it so much, and I've had so much fun nerding out with you today. <laughs> oh, you're so welcome. I, I I love being here, and I I'm a big fan of um, of the publication. I follow you and, and the and passengers on Twitter. So always cool to see all this stuff that's happening. Oh, thanks, Hoyan. I'm Lauren Byer, the visual arts editor of Passenger Journal, where our mission is to publish compelling art that is necessary rather than desired. You're listening to the Passenger's Artcast for Volume 2, Issue 8. Wow, wow, wow.